Uh, welcome everybody. I have the utmost pleasure to welcome you at the first uh, IMI seminar in this Trinity term. And uh, even bigger pleasure that we are starting the seminar with uh, Olivia's book launch. Just to say that uh, it's really amazing to have you here and congratulations on the book. It's a fantastic achievement and we are so, so, so happy that we can be part of it. <laughs> I'd like to say a big thank you to everyone at IMI for being such kind and extremely inspiring colleagues and especially to Robin for his support um, and encouragement with getting this book published. Um, and I can't believe that my PhD that drove me crazy for such a long time um, and then again last summer is now a published book. <laughs> um, and in the next half hour I'll give a brief overview of the book, um, some of its theoretical underpinnings, uh, its research context and empirical, and then some empirical examples or snapshots from the research that I conducted in London and Brazil. And I'll then outline what I hope are its main contributions um, to migration research. And after this, I thought we could break for a bit more lunch <laughs> and some drinks, and then have a bit of time for questions and comments. Um, and then time for you to all order your copy. <laughs> but, um, anyway, so first of all, why Brazilians in the UK? Um, why did I choose to focus on that? Um, and my research into Brazilian migrants is sort of contributes to a wider body of recent research into Latin American migration to the UK. Um, and as Robin was saying, despite the fact that Brazilians have been identified as one of the largest and fastest growing group of migrants of Latin Americans in the UK, concentrated in London, um, they remain under-researched and there's very little known about their migration trajectories, their lives in the UK, and indeed their experiences of return to Brazil. And if we look at this chart, which is based on UK census data, we can see how since 2001, the numbers of Brazilians coming to the UK has increased dramatically. Um, and these figures are actually quite conservative compared to the unofficial estimates by migrant organisations and the Brazilian Ministry of Foreign Affairs that puts the number at more like 180,000. And although the numbers are decreasing as the Brazilian economy booms and it becomes harder and harder for Brazilians to enter the UK, Recent research, including IMI's Themis project, shows that they're still arriving in quite significant numbers. And from the Brazilian perspective, emigration is a relatively recent phenomenon, as up until around the 1980s, it defined itself as a country of immigration, with large inflows from Europe and Japan in particular in the 19th and early 20th century. And many of the descendants of the Portuguese, Italian, Spanish and German settlers in the southern states of Brazil are able to use their European ancestry to get um, EU citizenship. And according to a recent study, about 31% of Brazilians in the UK have European passports, thus utilising what Durand and Massey have called ethnic capital to enter London's labour market. Um, but one thing that's clear from existing research is that Brazilian migration to the UK can't be regarded as a homogeneous or linear flow. And the Brazilians are a highly diverse group in rela relation to factors such as generation, gender, occupation, migration experience, social class, region of origin, and, as I argue, religion. And here I'm talking more specifically about London, where most of the existing studies um, have been conducted. But regardless of social status or region of origin, the great majority of London's Brazilians are employed in low-paid service sector jobs. 
And despite the possibilities for obtaining EU citizenship for, most, for, for many of them, large, large numbers are irregular and often forced to work in insecure and often exploitative conditions. So secondly, why did I choose to focus on religion? Um, and my decision stems partly from my experience conducting research in um, a small Irish town called Gort in 2008. Um, and in this small town of about 3,000 people, uh, of which around a third were Brazilian, there were seven different Brazilian evangelical churches and Catholic church that cele celebrated Mass in Portuguese twice a week. And as well as attending to migrant spiritual needs, the churches were also very important, or the most important, spaces of social support and community for Brazilians. Um, and during my interviews with migrants there, and then later in London for another research project, even when my questions were nothing to do with religion, people talked about the importance of God, of their faith, or of the church in guiding their migration experience. So religion emerged sort of emerged as a recurrent theme in my interviews, um, and I felt it required further investigation. Um, and just one more important contextual factor to mention is the religious field in Brazil itself, which is characterized by diversity and change. It's still the largest Catholic country in the world, despite a decline in recent years, but there's been a striking increase in Protestantism, and in particular Pentecostalism. Um, and it's now the second, the world's second largest Protestant country, it's the largest Pentecostal country, and the world's capital of Spiritism, as well as being home to Afro-Brazilian religions such as Candomblé and Umbanda, and myriad new religious movements. And this situation in Brazil is to some extent, extent it's, um, reflected in the religious field of Brazilians in diaspora. Um, and this is most visibly reflected in the emergence of many Brazilian religious institutions in receiving contexts. So in London, for example, there are, according to recent estimates, 80 Brazilian evangelical churches, a Brazilian Catholic chaplaincy that has seven different churches across London, um, and mass celebrated at least 15 times a week, um, several spiritist centres and terreiros for Candomblé and Umbanda. So the spread of religion from Brazil to the destinations of its diaspora forms what's been referred to as the kind of reverse, reverse missionizing, which a reversal of the missionary movements of the colonial era. And recent scholars have talked about Brazil as one of the major actors in this new global geography of religion. Um, and just yeah, to quickly talk about my fieldwork, so as to gain a deeper understanding into the role of religion in the migration process. My research that I carried out over 15 months um, involved fieldwork in London and Brazil, in the central states of Goiás and Minas Gerais. I don't know if you can see on this map, but yeah, Goiás and Minas Gerais, yeah. around here, which is where um, the majority of the migrants in London are coming from. Um, and my fieldwork consisted of ethnographic research and participant observation in. Um, churches, one Catholic and one Evangelical that has branches in London and in Brazil, in people's homes, workplaces and at community events. And I did a total of 78 in-depth interviews with religious leaders and migrants in London and religious leaders return migrants and family members of migrants in Brazil. So let me now just turn briefly to some of the literature that informed the conceptual framework of the book. Um, 
and it contributes to a growing body of work within transnational studies that is recognising the role of religion in transnational fields. And the most significant focus has been on religious congregation, migrant religious congregations and how these fulfil important social and spiritual roles for migrants in unfamiliar environments. But these studies are pre- predominantly US-based and scholars have considered the impact of migrants' religious practices on the American religious landscape. But in a lot of this work, including Peggy Levitt's book, God Needs No Passport, there's still a sense of religious institutions operating from above and somehow separate from the practices of migrants themselves, whose transnational activities are seen as being carried out from below. And my findings are more in line with Manuel Vazquez and Marie Marquardt's notion of religion occupying a a space somewhere in between um, these um, micro and macro processes that characterise global shifts. And I argue that religious institutions occupy a more complex middle ground with identities and practices that are constantly refashioned in response to new circumstances. And a second um, body body of research that relates to this middle ground is the notion of churches as representing not only spaces for belonging and solidarity for migrants, but also for facilitating and facilitating integration. But here there's a tension between the idea of churches as private spaces or as spaces through which migrants can engage with the receiving context. And some scholars have also argued that although the creation of a community of worshippers is an important role for migrants played by churches, we mustn't ignore the potential for new forms of exclusion. And this is something that very much came out in my research, particularly among migrants who felt that their lifestyles didn't fit within the moral framework of the church, or people that felt that the Brazilian Catholic Church was a space, sorry, of the Evangelical Church, or people that felt that the Brazilian Catholic Church was a space characterised by fofoca, or gossip. And in my work, I attempt to unpack or people these institutions and suggest that they're constituted by the practices of multiple individuals and function across overlapping scales. Um, and finally, as Robin mentioned, in recent years, some scholars have pointed to the need for more grounded work that looks at how religion is actually lived and practiced in the everyday lives of individuals and communities outside the institutional religious sphere. Few studies have drawn out the connection between the experience of migration and religion as lived from the perspectives of migrants themselves. So in my work I turn the focus to the, I turn the, focus to the agency of migrants um, and look at the ways in which they use religion in their everyday lives to live transnationally and to cope with the challenges of life in a new country. And I also consider how religion becomes intertwined with all stages of the migration process, including migrants' decision to migrate and their experiences of return. But I argue that attention to the agency of migrants mustn't overlook other fundamental factors and actors that impact on their everyday transnational lives, and not least those manifested very much within the realm of the nation-state. So now on to some empirical examples from the book. And I I divided my empirical analysis into three parts, um, which correspond to the three empirical chapters of the book, um, but are closely related to each other. And the first focuses on religious institutions, my case study churches, and how, like migrants, they adapt to new environments. And as I unpack or people these institutions, I talk about the importance of recognising religious leaders themselves as migrants with complex migration trajectories. 
And I also explore how the churches must adapt to respond to the diverse needs of migrants. It's not just a question of replicating churches in Brazil, but rather um, they need to be flexible and take on new roles in response to the new context. And one, one Catholic priest talked about this as a kind of broadening, not so much theological, but disciplinary, whereby the churches and leaders need to be more open to different behaviours. And these included, in his words, the fact that many members were irregular, there were couples living together outside marriage, as they were unable to marry legally in the UK, um, and also that he was fully aware that in the new context, many people attended church to address their practical as, a, as opposed to their spiritual needs as this quote suggests. Um, and another interesting broadening in the Catholic Church was the influence of the charismatic renewal movement, um, a movement within Catholicism that places emphasis on the Holy Spirit and the individual's relationship with God. And lots of, so it's a bit like Pentecostalism. Um, and lots of the members of the Catholic Church in London were keen charismatics, and the church provided space for a weekly charismatic prayer group and visits from charismatic priests from Brazil and elsewhere. And when I asked why the movement was so popular among Brazilian Catholic migrants in London, um, Padre José, who was one of the, the main priests, responded, it works with your feelings. Although it's not explicitly social or political, it offers much more immediate answers to political and social problems, like if you want a miracle or if you want a cure. And these are just some photographs of the, I don't know if you can see, but, but um, of the charismatic service in the Catholic Church. Um, now, unlike the Catholic Church, the Evangelical Church was denominationally independent, established by an individual, Pastor Marco, and fashioned according to his reading of the Bible. But although theologically open, the church was organised around a fairly rigid hierarchical structure, which Pastor Marco explained was based on the teachings of Apostle Paul, who said that the leader must not, and I quote, be a novice so that they do not become proud and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And here's a photograph of the service at the Evangelical Church. Um, a key difference between the discourses of the two churches relates to migrants' legal status. And Pastor Marco explained that the church, the importance of discipline in his church, and how they didn't support irregular migrants, preferring to promote a life free of sin, of what he referred to as sin. He explained how this stance was based on biblical teachings, and again of Apostle Paul under Caesar during the Roman Empire. And he said, Apostle Paul shows clearly that we must obey the authorities, because there are no authorities that have not been established by God. So based on these biblical teachings, we instruct people that they change their situations, that they regularise themselves. In contrast, at the Catholic Church, leaders expressed a somewhat more compassionate attitude towards migrants, towards irregular migration. And Padre Mauricio, Mauricio commented, I always need to take a human attitude, always. I can't be shocked by anything because it could be me. I can also make mistakes. Above all, I can't judge anyone. And the second part of my empirical analysis in the book turns the focus of the perspectives of migrants, the users of the churches, and how their practices adapt to, new context, to the new context. Within migrants' narratives of their experiences in London, there was a recurring notion of the feelings of lack or emptiness, and the church played an important role in filling this gap. And this was often expressed with reference to the social dimension of religion. 
and how the church was a space to meet people or to feel more at home in an otherwise unfamiliar space. Um, as this remark from Dulce suggests. And this also relates to the role of the church in the creation and maintenance of social networks. For many interviewees, both Catholic and evangelical, the church was the first point of call for finding a job, a place to live, or someone to look after your children, etc. And another key theme among the London migrants was that co-worshippers from the church were more likely to be good and trustworthy as compared to other people, usually other Brazilians, who um, in London. And these sort of moral discourses point to a kind of insider-outside dichotomy, whereby members of the church or, believe, or believers are seen to have the strength to remain within this moral framework, whereas many other Brazilians, and I quote from Anna from this slide, lose themselves and have no clear path to follow. Religion, in this sense, provides a means by which to control any immoral urges. And another key theme that emerges in the book, that I talk about in the book, is the importance of the internet in the transnational religious lives of migrants and how they and their families in Brazil participate in religious communities and what I call virtual religious spaces. And the internet allows migrants in London to share their religious experiences with their loved ones back home. And during my fieldwork, I went to an event organized by the Charismatic Prayer Group at the Catholic Church. And there were a couple who were giving a testimonio or testimony on stage. And when I interviewed them afterwards, they told me that they knew their families were watching in Brazil, which made the experience even more special. And as Wesley, the man, remarked. So today we feel that there isn't so much distance. We're not so far from our family as in Brazil, because whether we like it or not, they were watching us today. So we felt they were close to us. And finally, the, the live transmission of services over the internet allowed return migrants to continue to participate in their religious lives in London. And Graciela, the woman I interviewed in Brazil, um, told me how the online prayer group at the Catholic Church had been an important source of support in her readaptation to the, and to cope with the challenges of life back in Brazil. So for many Brazilian migrants in London, religion seems to take on a new and often more important role as a consequence of migrating. But I came to realise during my fieldwork that coping with the saudade or longing for home, friends and people in Brazil, or creating a new home and family in London, were not necessarily the most important roles of religion in the lives of many Brazilian migrants. And I realised that my unfamiliarity with aspects of religious faith and my fundamentally social scientific perspective meant that I was concentrating too much on the social role of the church and paying too little attention to the importance of individual faith and spirituality. So here I'll just touch briefly on the third section of my empirical analysis in the book, where I talk about the ways religion, religious faith is manifested outside the institutional realm. And individual contact with God seemed to represent for many the ultimate solace in the face of the loneliness and hardship encountered in London, as well as helping people to feel connected with their families back home. And also many people among those who never went to church um, would carry around images of saints or have home shrines which they would pray to to help them feel protected in London or connected to absent loved ones, relating to what Robin was talking about, this idea of portable religion. 
and here are just some photos, they're not very good photographs, and you probably can't really see it of home. Um, yeah, the way people brought religion into their homes. Um, and the relationship between faith and the migration experience, before, after, before, during and after, was an explicit theme throughout the narratives of migrants and their families, even those who had not chosen to frequent the church. So many respondents explained how grateful they were to God for things having worked out in London. And one, one person, Anna, told me that it was God who had opened the doors and God who had prepared everything in London where she'd managed to make a life for herself. But Anna's brother, Rogerio, wanted to come and join Anna in London, but was denied entry at Heathrow and sent immediately back to Brazil. When I asked Anna's sister, Carla, who herself was granted a six-month tourist visa at the border, about Rogerio's experience with regard to God's will, she explained, it's something that we call the mysteries of faith. Um, the fact that he managed to get his things together to go made us think, ah, oh, God is letting this happen. And when he arrived and everything went wrong, we asked, why is God not letting him in? But then she went on to say that Rogerio went back to Brazil and managed to get a much better job than the one he'd had before. So perhaps this had all been part of God's plan. And in other cases, people recounted how when things went wrong and they were on the verge of going back to Brazil, their faith gave them the strength to stay. Now, I mentioned earlier how immigration status was an important theme within the narratives of church leaders. The relationship between faith and immigration status also emerged in the narratives of other interviewees for whom it seemed God protects the undocumented. As Paolo remarked, I think I'm here because of God's plan, because the world is God's creation. It's not Tony Blair's, not Gordon Brown's. If I have to leave tomorrow, it will be because of God's will. So just to sum up, this book seeks to address uh, three significant gaps in migration research and to contribute to wider moves to um, respond to these gaps. And the first is the focus on Brazilians in London, a group who remain largely under-researched, but whose experience shed light, experiences shed light on the emergence and evolution of new migration patterns, as IMI's Themis project is showing. <laughs> Secondly, my research incorporate, um, incorporates the return context, which is often, also often neglected within studies of transnational migration. And although there's a vast literature on the impact of migration in sending countries through remittances and the impact on development, or the notion of brain drain, etc., there's very little research into the experiences of returnees and how, in fact, returning to one's place of origin and readapting to life back there can be just as, if not more, challenging than settling into life in a new country. And finally, and most significantly, is the focus on religion a largely neglected theme within migration studies, particularly in the UK. And while religious institutions provide crucial spaces for spiritual and social support, the notion of what I refer to as religion as lived allows us to see how migrants and their families use religion in multiple ways throughout their migration experience. And through developing this concept of transnational religious spaces, I analyze the complex relationship between religion and transnationalism and the way religion is practiced and experienced within and across multiple overlapping scales. And I argue that we need to move beyond rigid categories 
that posit religion as dichotomously opposed to the realms of the secular, the rational, or the everyday. And this book thus calls for an expanded notion of religion that encompasses the broad range of practices and beliefs that have shaped and continue to shape our increasingly globalised and transnational world. Thank you. <laughs>